everyone, welcome to From Door to Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joe Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Kelly Chase, a history teacher, songwriter, and fellow podcaster. Throughout our lives, we tend to be taught history in such a way that we regard it as the mere chronicling of events. History is written by people, however, and the people who write history books write with the biases and limitations inherent in their life experiences. This can lead to inaccuracies or omissions that can alter our view of the past, diminishing or exalting people and events beyond their objective effects. Perhaps there are no more groups more marginalized in this regard than women. And today, we'll touch on the importance of her story. All right, Kelly, thanks for being on the show. Um, what can you tell the listeners about yourself? Well, I wasn't ever interested in history when I was younger. I I kind of studied it up to grade 10 in school and nothing lit my fire about history whatsoever. I didn't study it. It wasn't until I traveled overseas that I started to get an interest in history. And I suspect that perhaps my lack of interest in history stems from the fact that I didn't see myself represented in any of the texts that we saw or read. And it was just a dry, I guess they they say stale, male and pale history that we were presented in school. So it wasn't until I was able to do my own historical discoveries of people and places and a bit more inclusive of women and other um, marginalized groups that I was able to start building my love of history and getting away from what is traditionally represented in the textbooks. But anyway, I eventually came back to Australia and during the global financial crisis, thought, oh, I better do something that's a little bit uh, proof of it. <laughs> um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Disaster proof. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> which helped out in the pandemic. And um, then I went back and I studied teaching and history. I was really into history at this stage and got a job in a school teaching English and history and just fell into the history department, then became the head of department for history. And during the pandemic, that's when I started the podcast because I just wanted to give teachers a little break from online teaching because it was a punish, <laughs> let's yeah. be honest. And I wanted to be able to provide a resource that they could hook into, let the kids listen to for 20 minutes and then have some discussion. Um, you know, while the kids are listening, they could plan their next lesson or whatever they needed to do. So that's how the podcast came about. And I never really stopped um, just because I kept finding the stories of a lot of women and some First Nations people um, whose stories just didn't appear in the textbooks. So, and then I also, with the music section of it, I wanted to have a podcast that broke down songs. But as you know, as a musician and as a podcaster, copyright is not really, um, mm. is really difficult to get. So I thought, oh, I've got skills as a songwriter. I will just, um, write my own music for my songs and that's how that kind of integrated in there and became part of the history detective podcast yeah that yeah, was so that's super cool yeah i was uh you and i were talking about it before we started recording i went over to youtube and was watching some of the some of the videos that you have the songs you wrote, wrote about history and it's really neat um it's really creative and, and inventive and the songs have um a unique feel to them 
And uh, yes, been the inspiration for heaps of art, like books, movies, like there's tons of stuff on Netflix and music as well. So I think it has a real place in our cultural life as a society history to inspire us. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so it's interesting that you were interested in history when you were younger, because I feel like a lot of times when you hear stories about people who um, end up doing a particular thing with their life, you, they are, they're always saying, Oh, I, I knew from a young age I wanted to do this. And I'm not one of those people, right? Like I, I did, was not interested in music until I was a teenager. Um, and you know, I, there was a lot of things that I, I didn't really get into until later on. Um, so it's funny that you have sort of that same thing. Can you think of a particular, um, Thing that got you into history was it a particular uh, woman's story or was it something else that got you into it actually no it was more of a first nation story but i mean i had been living in japan and that was really interesting that i was seeing monuments and things that were older than my country's supposed i guess white history um but then I was reading a Bill Bryson book about Australia. He's an American sort of travel author because I was always into travel. And then in his book about Australia, he started talking about the massacres of First Nations people in Australia. And I was like, no, this, I didn't learn this. <laughs> what, yeah. What's going on here? And that was, I guess, my entry point into history. And then I went back to university and started learning a little bit more about colonial history. And I didn't learn a lot of women's history at uni. It was more First Nations history. It wasn't until I got into the history classroom and was teaching, look, to be honest, there's so much history you have to teach as a history teacher and you only know a little bit that you learnt in uni or you taught yourself. So you rely quite heavily on the textbooks. And then I was noticing there were some gaps in there. Like, there's no women in here. Or I'd find an assignment online and it'd be research a significant person. Here's a list of 20 males that you can use. What about the girls in the class? Like, they've got no one to look up to and there's no females that are significant in this whole period. So that's what started me on that journey. It wasn't until I was teaching history that I noticed the real gaps in the textbook portrayals of history. Yeah, that, you know, being a philosophy show, those are things that we think about a lot is those those areas that, um, you know, people might just sort of overlook on a, on a casual glance. And history is one of those, right? You go through school, you know, and if history wasn't your thing in school, or even if it was, um, you might read through the book and the thought might not cross your mind that, hey, there aren't any stories about women in here. Or, you know, these genocides that happened or these sorts of things aren't in the book. Um, and you can think, well, if you had, you know, a woman or if you had a man that, that achieved this feat that a woman did, or if white people got massacred in the same way, it would be in a book and it's not right. So we, uh, we did an episode on historicity, which is, um, you know, looking at the, uh, the factual basis of historical events and figures and that sort of thing. And, and that really opened our eyes in that episode to, um, you know, divergent lines of history and, and, and how things, 
um, you know, like kind of like I said in the intro, just we think of it as a chronicling of events, but really, uh, you know, a history textbook is one person or one organization's view on, on something, how something happened, but there might be omissions or inaccuracies, you know, maybe not necessarily on purpose, you know, they might not be trying to, to slight somebody, um, but it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a more concerted effort to try to tell the story objectively and include as many people as, as we can. It's all about perspectives, really, just showing because the same event can happen and 15 different people can have 15 different perspectives on it. But generally, history is written from the very narrow one person's perspective because the fact is women have been there all along. <laughs> like, right. They're there side by side with men in history. It's just that either they're not the ones being included in the stories written about them or they're perspectives don't seem important enough to make it into the archives. So when the historians go to the archives to research, their perspectives are just not there to draw from to write history about. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, the listeners are likely aware that history isn't an unbiased pursuit, but how and why have women been affected by the way history has been recorded? So we've talked about, you know, a little bit how, you know, we've we sort of set the groundwork, you know, that that Listen, you know, just because it's in the history textbook doesn't necessarily mean that it's exactly how it happened. But how has mm. how have women specifically been affected by this? I think what it does is the fact that they're not there, it embeds an implicit bias about gender roles and what that only men can be significant. Um, so women are also in the textbooks are shown in these domestic roles. So it impacts their self-esteem and their ability to go, oh yeah, I can do that or I can be really significant and important in history. But it also, it perpetuates that in young boys saying that if they're not seeing women, they're not seeing that women can be important and significant and it's kind of inherently biased. I remember when I was, I was like in my 20s and I was playing guitar and my nephew was about eight and I picked up the guitar and I started playing. He's like, girls can't play guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they can. (laughs) See? Listen, um, but I think it's because obviously the videos that he's watching on television and music, MTV, there were not any female representation. So implicitly in his brain, this eight-year-old, no one would have ever told him those words that girls can't play guitar, but they were never seen. It was something that he'd never seen in representation in pop culture very often. So he had just embedded that implicit bias that they weren't able to do that. So I think it's the same with history. It's the same kind of concept. Um, I think it's really also important to think about that history is generally written from a place of privilege. If you're writing history, you're probably very wealthy. You're probably very upper class. You've definitely literate. (laughs) So those people who don't have those skills or have been denied those skills throughout history as well have not been able to share their stories in history. Um, And maybe people might write about them, but their perspective is never shown. So like I said, you get a very narrow perspective. I think um, there was like an 
I think I wrote it down, a 2006 Slate magazine survey and it said that 75% of all of the history books are written by men and then 20% of those are biographies which represents about 120 books and then 100 of those, 120, were about men. So the balance is really uneven. Another really interesting fact is um, not just writing the history but representing the history uh, is statues. In Australia, I'm not sure about the statistics in the US, um, only 4% of the statues represented are of women and there are, this is a funny one, there are more animal statues in Australia than there are of women. So, you know, <laughs> there you I, go. I've never thought about that, but that has to be, that has to also be true in the U.S. Because, you know, if I think about it, like women's statues in the U.S., the only one I've ever heard of is a really terrible Lucille Ball statue, <laughs> in, in, yeah. you know, but yeah, you see horses or, you know, lions or, or things everywhere. But yeah, I think, um, you know, anecdotally, you start to, if you start to think about it, because my master's degree is in education, um, and I remember being sort of shocked um, in one of my classes when they said that there's a crisis in um, higher education for males. Um, there, The amount of men enrolling in um, college period, but especially in upper degree programs, has declined so significantly that colleges are actually taking um, some affirmative action steps to try to get men into college. But like you just mm. said, when you think about people who are writing the history books, or if you see an interview on TV with, with, um, a professional or these sorts of things, it, it almost is always men, you know? Um, yeah. and it's, it just seems a little bit strange. Like I, you know, if you were to tell people, you know, talking about women being able to do things that, that men can, right? The only person ever to win a Nobel Prize in two categories is Marie Curie. Or Ada Lovelace was the first person to write a piece of software for a computer almost a 100 years before a computer was invented, right? You have a lot of these people. My favorite stories are I, I like astronomy. So um, thinking about the beginnings of NASA, um, before they had you know, computers, computing machines, they had what they called um, Harvard computers, which was a, a group of women um, that would take reams of data from the astronomers and then perform all the calculations. And that's like diametrically opposed to the narrative that we have about women being able to do math or do hard sciences, right? Here's three women right there that were involved in hard sciences and did things that no man ever has. Nobody's ever won the Nobel Prize in two different categories, you know, wrote the first computer algorithm, you know, and then in astronomy, you look at astronomy, basically the basis of all astronomy was discovered by women. Cepheid variables, um, dark matter, every, everything in astronomy was discovered by women because they were the ones doing all of the math um, behind the scenes for men. So, yeah, it's really um, wild. You know, we it's one thing to sit here and talk about it academically how women are well represented but if the listeners kind of think to their own experience um in how they consume media or um you know how how they've uh, interact with the world it probably becomes pretty evident that that women are underrepresented in a lot of ways 
Um, but like you said, they're there as well because I think it was Einstein's wife. I think her name was Milena. Um, she helped him write his papers, but because it was a bit uncool to have a woman on your paper to be published, they decided not to include her name so it would have more credibility. So that was sort of a deliberate exclusion from the narrative. So yeah. he gets all the credit. Yeah, and there's a lot of that is, you know, in, in every area. Um, another one in astronomy would be William Herschel. William Herschel is known as this famous astronomer. Um, and his mm. sister would, would grind lenses for him, grind lenses for the telescope. But in her spare time, she was also making observations. And a lot of her observations and discoveries uh, rival anything that he did. But you don't really hear about Caroline Herschel. You hear about William Herschel, you know. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of that in history of, of yeah. you know, mm-hmm. women either um, assisting in things or doing things on their own, but having them attributed to men or just really not not mentioned. Um, so I have a question here. Who is the first woman historian? And I think this is sort of important because um, you'd have to think at some point women would see that their stories weren't being told and somebody would want to sort of get in on the action. Did you have an answer for this one? <laughs> I do. Um, the the answer is a bit twofold because if you Google it, there's... <laughs> There's a Western answer and there is a non-Western answer, which is a lot earlier. So the first female historian is actually a Chinese woman called Ban Zhao, and she was about the year 45 CE, so quite early on. Her dad was a historian and her brother was a historian and her dad was writing this really, really comprehensive history um, of, I can't remember which dynasty it was. Um, and he died and then the brother carried on writing the book and he died. And then, so she finished up writing this massive, massive book of history. But often when you Google the first female historian, you'll get the answer, which is a lady called Anna Komnena, who was a little later about 10, 83, I think it was, yeah. So, yeah, it's funny how what society can see as important is, oh, well, it's European history that we're recording rather than Asian history. So there was a, there was a one right way back in the day in 45. Yeah, and I, I imagine that women have been probably recording their own histories, women who could write. Both of these women, women were from a very um, place of a lot of privilege. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. As I was about to say, both of those are earlier than I think I, I would have thought. Um, do you happen to know anything about their, their works? Did they, did they, um, were they mostly trying to stick to the mainline historical, um, script or were they, did they have any active, um, involvement in, in promoting women's stories? I think that they were sort of doing mainline. They were just, because they were from this place of privilege, they were sort of telling the war stories and stuff like that. However, Banjal, she um, she wrote another little book, which was sort of more like a pamphlet, which was kind of like a um, <clears throat> teaching women how to behave <laughs> in Chinese society. And that, you know, if you, if your husband died, you weren't allowed to get remarried. Um, and 
this is how you should behave in these sort of situations. So she gives a really interesting perspective and about what she thought as a higher class Chinese woman in this time in 45 CE or from then on. Um, and I guess there's a bit of a, an argument later on that feminists are like, oh, she was repressing women for years because women had to read this and follow these instructions of how to be a good, polite girl in society. But she's just representing what her perspective is. So we can't dismiss that and dismiss her and her actions just because that was what was expected of, in, of women at the time. Yeah, and this is this is something that comes up on on our show quite a bit, and it's it's a very difficult subject because you know, especially here in the states, we deal with, um, you know, the big thing a few years ago was Confederate monuments, right, or um, yeah. the founding fathers owning owning slaves and things, and um, you know, you you know, there's there's a quickness to condemn these people, um, which. Which is deserved, right? Because what they did is wrong. You know, owning slaves is wrong or, um, you know, these sorts of things. Um, but at the same time, that's the hard part about history is that everybody lives in a context, right? And so, um, you know, I can even think within my lifetime of things that, that have changed, you know, things that would have been acceptable at one point and are no longer acceptable, right? Um, whether it's regarding race or the treatment of, of, people of other genders or um people with with mental handicaps and things right and so i you know i think back to my childhood and how those people were treated and you know at the time you don't necessarily think of it as as wrong um and then you reflect on it years later and you go no that was absolutely um out of line right oh, and some of those things some of those things in the moment you know are wrong you know there's definitely things i knew from a young age i said oh, that's not right that's not the way you treat people um, but then there's other yeah. things that over time you go, well, you know what? I look back on it and I, I didn't know it then, but now I wish that I had done some, something different, you know? And that's where history is kind of tricky. But Yeah. Um, I don't think you can too harshly judge people from the past for their views or their, I guess, complicitness in whatever horrific thing was going on because there's so much pressure from society at that time to just accept that as the norm. So you have to be a little bit compassionate when looking at people from history. And also people are not perfect. Humans are not perfect. So there's no perfect specimen of woman or man from history. It's it's people from history who have flaws and have flawed thoughts. Um, and you just have to just look at that and say, okay, these are the good things and these are some of the questionable things, but that was the time that they were living in and you can't judge them for that, for being yeah. a product of that. Yeah, I think it's important to, you know, I think it's important to tell both the good and the bad story. Um, you know, I don't think we should be hiding the bad story, but I don't think we should be throwing out the good because of, of the bad, you know? Yeah. There are some people... Yeah, there's some people who who did some great things that, you know, also did some terrible things. And I think it's important that the history is told in such a way that both of those sides are, are represented. It happens a lot, like with um, sort of bringing people down on TikTok. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen like 
people bringing Gandhi down because he, you know, he was a bit of a weirdo in some aspects, but he did some incredible things. And you can't discount the incredible things because there were some questionable things. He's just a human who was, I guess, making his way through and making life, making mistakes on the way through life. Right. Um, yeah. And the same with Martin Luther King and the, the people trying to bring him down because they're saying he's plagiarized or whatnot, whatever other controversies. But again, he's, He's a human. He's going to make mistakes. If we're expected to be perfect, I don't. I've don't, not met anyone who's perfect. Yeah, yeah it's it's an unrealistic <laughs> standard, and it's part yeah. of the. I think it's part of the problem that is you know it it comes from history itself, right? We've been told history in such a way for so long um, that especially you know, like I said, here in the states, right? Um, you don't go out on the streets and, and trash the founding fathers for anything that they did. But like you said, they were people. They made mistakes, and it's it, people should recognize the things that they did wrong as well as the things they did right to, to get a fuller picture. But it, it's hard, you know, for the very same reason that those other people made mistakes. We all live in a context. Um, we all have been told certain things, and we're all trying to weed out, you know, what what is the right thing to do, you know? Can you give us a, a broad overview of some of the major contributions women have made to history? Well, I guess often what women do is fight for the rights um, to participate in society without just demonization. They're also often just fighting in the background for the rights of children and others and to be able to have a comfortable life. Um, I was just revisiting one of my old episodes about this woman, um, Irene Longman, in in my state in back in the day and she was a big advocate of public playgrounds hmm. she, you, something you take for granted and she went for co- to conferences all over the world in the 1900s early 1900s looking at how best to provide for children in the community to how design a playground and give them a space where they can play in a public place if they're a lower socioeconomic family. So sometimes their contributions are big and huge, um, like, and sometimes they're queens and sometimes they're really significant people. Sometimes they're the parliament in the parliament. So these women who were elected into parliament, into a room full of men who are only looking at it from their male perspectives. And then when the women get in there, they say, okay, so what about this particular thing? Have you thought about maybe making a rule about having a ramp on a footpath (laughs) so that women can push their prams up there because men don't really know or understand or see that that might be a problem in the broader part of society or even larger things like rights of women to vote or rights of women to work or not lose their job after they get married, (laughs) you know, those kind of things. But also there have been lots of women in history who have ruled as a regent for maybe a young boy who's been too young to rule at the time. So the women will just make all the decisions. Um, There's also often a male will get credit for something. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the, they call him the father of gynecology. He's called J. Marin Sims. And he is 
was, I guess, it's a little bit dicey, credited with being the father of gynecology and now that women's bodies are being explored because of this man. But the way that he did this is he did experiments and used black slave women as guinea pigs. So these women... Their, their bodies and their uteruses and their wombs contributed to this science of gynecology because of this man, but they don't get the credit because they're just nameless, faceless women, but he still gets the credit for being the father of gynecology. But there's also countless like scientists, invents, inventors, like the woman who invented the windshield wiper. So when you, when you get into your car and it's raining and your wind, windshield wipers start going, you can say, oh, thank you. A lady did that. Um, nice. I think you mentioned um, Ada Lovelace. And also I found out this morning the woman who invented the dishwasher, I think she was a German woman. So she, wow. she just, yeah. Um, so there's so many contributions of women that I guess you don't necessarily know about. But they're there all along, but you just have to dig a little deeper. There's an interesting book um, that's just been released. It's called Women, Warriors, and Quiet Revolutionaries. And it's a big companion of about a 1,000 women who have made contributions in history. And some of them are the big names, but some of them are, like I said, this woman who invented the dishwasher or... Um, you know, the first female who was orde- ordained um, and, and women from all over the world. So I think I'm excited to actually order and read that book because it's putting women back into the narrative and saying, look, we're here all along. <laughs> just yeah. got to dig a little bit to share their stories. Yeah, I think that yeah. that, that sounds really interesting. I kind of want to read it myself. Um, but yeah, I think that you, you touched on something that is, I, I've realized myself, which is that um, you know, in the U.S., lots of times when we we talk about discrimination, um, it it's usually racial, um, and which is you know, of course, a, a big problem, um, because it's very evident. Um, but I think that for a lot of history, um, in in parts of the world, women were considered property, right? They weren't considered people, which yes. is sort of a similar situation, um, but it didn't it doesn't have the spotlight shined on it in quite the same way or um you know like you said with contributions sort of being overshadowed or you know having other things taken credit for in that sort of way um so it's you know it's sort of a i remember talking multiple people said this to me when when barack obama got elected president um leading up to you know the the primaries well on you know they were saying who do you think is going to win the primary for Democratic presidential nominee? It's going to be Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. And several people said to me, it's going to be Barack Obama because America is ready for its first black man president, but it's not ready for its first female president, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, we saw Hillary Clinton not only lose that primary, but also lose the election later on to Donald Trump. And it makes you wonder, you know, a lot other developed countries, you know, have women leaders. Um, and the U S still is in a spot where we haven't, we haven't gotten to that point yet. Yeah. Um, I think England's free and then New Zealand, they've had two, I think Australia's only had the one prime minister. Um, 
that's been a hot minute since yeah. she, she was in 10, 15 years since we've had a female. But I hold out hope that we'll get another one one day in my lifetime. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I think about um, Queen Elizabeth I was an interesting story because her, you know, when she became Queen of England, um, there wasn't supposed to be a Queen of England. It was all kings up until that point. And um, she technically didn't even really have a legitimate claim because her mother was Anne, Anne Boleyn, not, you know, Henry VIII's wife. So she was in a dicey spot and then she took over and, um, you know, she she essentially built the the British Empire that, that we know, which, you know, again, it's history. So you, there's the positives and the negatives to it, but... Regardless, you know, the situation that she came from and what she was able to do um, were very impressive. And that's something that, that gets overlooked. You know, I think that looking at history from a male perspective, whenever women do something, I think there's almost this sort of, you know, um, feeling that, oh, well, it was about time. Like, you know, men had been doing it for so long, now women did it. But if you think about it from the other way around, right? Like, imagine that you were a man going into a traditionally female dominated um profession right like if i wanted to become a fashion designer right yeah just thinking about that is so intimidating to me that like i couldn't imagine even if i loved it you know trying to get involved in this um so being a woman on the other side of it with something much more consequential than fashion design right running a country or you know developing um you know x-rays or all of these these advances that they made trying to break into that field without all of the added pressure of, you know, um, sexual harassment and everything else that goes along with it. It's really amazing. Um, some of the stories that you do hear of, of women overcoming all of these obstacles to, to, you know, contribute in the ways that they do. Um, um, Jacinda Ahern the other day, the New Zealand prime minister, and she was meeting with another female prime prime minister or leader from Europe and they were both in their 40s and they're both women and, and a reporter said to them oh so are you meeting because you're both women in your 40s <laughs> and just slapped him down and said no we're meeting because we're the leaders of our country right it's just it's a mind-boggling thing to even ask you know like they don't have anything better to do you know than it uh, just have some a symbolic meeting like, no they have business to do they're leaders of you know uh. so do you have a favorite um historical woman oh, that's trying to pick a favorite child isn't it um i do have some favorites <laughs> sometimes when i'm writing an episode about of history detective about a woman i'll be completely in love with that particular woman and i'll be raving about them um one of them is that i've done recently is a lady called isabel mcbride and she was australia's first female archaeologist it wasn't that long ago. It was only in the 1960s and you couldn't study archaeology in Australia. You had to go to um, England or Cambridge. And when she got there, she was doing Egypt and Rome and she came back to Australia and started teaching archaeology in Australia. But what she also did was started to recognise that Australian history was more than just the 200 odd years of colonial history, but it was instead a 
40,000-year-old First Nations history, and she started to open a dialogue with the First Nations people. The male archaeologists would kind of like stamp on in and go, this is our land, we're doing archaeology, we'll do what we want. But she started, she was more compassionate in her approach with her relationships with the First Nations people, and she would form relationships with them and understand their ideas and concepts of having a country and belonging to the country and the country owns you. And she helped them to recognize the importance of sharing their story and their histories and archaeology and she championed a lot of First Nations archaeologists in Australia. So she's a pretty amazing woman. There's another group of women in the Vietnam War, Vietnamese women, who worked for, (coughs) sorry, who worked for the Viet Cong and um, they were called the Perfume River Squad and they were women who were just sales vendors, things like that, and they would send intel and be spies as women working in the community to say, here, this is what the American soldiers were doing, and they were protecting their country because they didn't call it the Vietnam War. They called it the American War. Um, So these women were protecting their country. They were fierce communists and believed in trying to protect their country country and they played quite a big role in the Tet Offensive. Um, That's a really interesting one. And another really interesting woman who's obviously from, this is from the perspective of a First Nations woman in Australia whose country had been colonised, who um, there's a state in Australia called Tasmania. So if you look at the map of Australia, it's that little tiny island down the bottom. And Systematically, <clears throat> the colonists had been trying to wipe out the Aboriginal people on the island of Tasmania. By They did a thing called the Black Line where it's basically where you just kind of like, you know, walk across a big field and if you see a, an Aboriginal person, you're trying to kill them and wipe them out. There was also a man who was a missionary who was, going around convincing them to say, hey, come along with me, I'll save your life and popping them on an island away from other people. But Taranora, she was a First Nations woman. She was actually kidnapped by sealers, so men who were catching and killing seals, when she was 14 years old um, and kept by them. So I think she had a pretty horrific time as a teenager. You can imagine what kind of atrocities she might have lived through and she escaped from them eventually in her 20s and went and lived with a tribe and rallied them up but while she was living with the sealers she had been observing them and watching them with their guns and sort of saying okay so this is how these guns work (laughs) all right and so when she'd um she led this clan of first nations people to attack the the white colonists and she would teach them things like um, now you can you can attack while they're reloading because it takes them so long to reload that's the best time and she was quite a fierce competitor and she was feared by the people of the time um, she did eventually get captured by that man who was sending them all to 
the island. And unfortunately, she died when, when she was in her 30s of just the influenza, um, which is one thing that wiped out a lot of First Nations people because they just didn't have the immunity for the diseases that were brought to Australia with the colonists. So she's a fascinating woman. And the, the interesting thing about her is that her stories are told in the diaries of people. But unfortunately, we don't get her perspective because she was a First Nation. She wouldn't have been literate. It would have been the like 1800s. Um, and so we can only guess at what she thought. But she must have thought that this invasion by the colonists was a pretty horrible thing because she was willing to fight and lay her life down and attack as a woman and lead people just to to try and protect her land. Yeah, yeah so. you you think about some of these um, some of these stories throughout history, um, and it's you know the way the perspective is written. Like here in the U.S., right, the Vietnam War, we're taught that we were we were doing something good, right? But then you find and- out that really. Vietnam was the territory of France, and then they tried to rebel, and France said no, and we said, okay, we'll help out France, and then France ditched just a, a year or two into the war, and then we just hung out there fighting for for what exactly, right? You know, so, and you see a lot of those those types of things happen, and, you know, thinking here in our history books, what are we taught about Australia? almost nothing about Australia, period, but anything that there is, it's it's all after colonization, right? It's after, um, you know, the white settlers came to Australia. I, I know I know nothing about um, pre-colonial Australia, right? And so it does get you interested in some of that. And you, like you said, some of that has to do with, with literacy and, and how things were recorded and written down. Um, but some of it is just, you know, the whitewashing of, of history. Um, do you, have you come across in, in any of your studies, are there any cultures that are more amenable to, um, presenting women in a, in a, a better light historically? Or is it pretty much across the board, this kind of patriarchal sort of situation? Not that I'm aware of, but I could be wrong. That's the thing with history. It's really hard to know all the history of all the places all the time. And, and I don't speak all of the languages. I only speak oh, one and a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. I was just, use, I was just curious it. about that one. Um, no, so not... What is one woman's story that all listeners should know, but they likely don't? If you had to tell one story that you, you think most people are unaware of, but they should know it, whose who's would that be? There's one woman called Maria Bochkareva, and she is a Russian woman. Um, and the words that are associated with her are the Russian Women's Battalion of Death. So that's a bit intense. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know if you know, it wasn't until about 2013 in Australia. It was about a similar time in the US, 2013 or maybe 2012, I don't know, that women were allowed in combat roles in the army. So prior to that, if you were a woman in the army, you could kind of be there, but you weren't allowed to be in a combat role. Um, but that's not the case in Russia. Um, there was a woman called Maria Bochkareva and she was a peasant. She was illiterate, um, barely literate. And she, World War One had broken out 
But prior to that, she'd been married off at quite a young age, probably about 14, which seems to be the age that women are married off, to an alcoholic. Her dad was an alcoholic. He beat her up. She got married to another alcoholic. Then she ran away and with another guy who turned out to be an alcoholic. And there was just kind of this perpetuation of domestic violence in her life. And World War I broke out and a way that she thought she could escape this perpetuation of horrible life as a peasant woman being violently abused by the men in her life was to join the army. Um, And she went to join up and they said, no, you can't join up, you're a woman. But she said, what about if I get permission from the Tsar? And they said, all right, if you get permission from the Tsar, that's fine, you can join up. And she said, well, I can't write, so you're going to have to help me write a letter. (laughs) So she made them scribe a letter for her to write to the Tsar. And then the Tsar said, yes, that is, yep, you can join the army. And she joined the army as like the only woman in the army. And then as World War One went on, and there was also the Russian Revolution kind of brewing at the same time. Um, As World War One went on, men were getting less and less keen to join up in the army, and they thought, well, we've got one woman. Let's see if we can use the women in the army. And they had this big campaign to join up other women into the Russian army to fight in World War One, and Maria Bochkareva was the leader of this Russian Women's Battalion of Death, and they were called the Battalion of Death because they would obviously fight to the death <laughs> if they were they were happy they weren't getting out of this alive, and they also used them as a way of shaming the men who didn't want to join up into joining because they're saying these women are joining up. But there was a bit of a problem because the men who were in the army didn't know how kind of to respond to this battalion of women. And so when they went off to fight in their first battle, the men, instead of backing them up, went and had a meeting about what are we going to do? <laughs> so, and the women took took this German stronghold and they ended up running out of ammo and had to withdraw but there were some issues with the battalion of death they had to um there were rations during this time so they had to just wear men's uniforms so they had ill-fitting uniforms made for a male physique rather than a female physique but it was interesting it was you know cases of women's wearing pants but one thing that you can't really um you can't really change or tighten up his boots because they were women with small, tiny feet and they only had these big men's boots. So there was a lot of um, compromise going on there. But she ended up defecting when the Bolsheviks kind of took over and they withdrew from World War One, and the Bolsheviks took over. She defected to the US and she had a man write her memoir or her autobiography for her Mm. and because she was anti-communist and America and Australia were really anti-communist they really loved it and people read her book and um, shared her story so she was quite hot in 1918 as a bit of a heroine she ended up going back to Russia 
and the Bolsheviks caught her and she was executed, unfortunately. But she's a really, really interesting, fascinating story of a strong-willed young peasant woman who, you know, stuck to her guns and changed the systems of her whole country and her army and then had people following her story in in Australia and in the US. Yeah. And it was great. Someone who is illiterate was able to have her story out there and have her story told by someone else. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's crazy to think, you know, if um, if she didn't, if she didn't have that um, angle of, um, you know, opposing the communists and, and being illiterate, if we'd even know her story, you know, um, how much of it we'd know. But yeah, no, it's that's an incredible one. Like I said, again, you know, not only entering a, a male-dominated um you know, um, faction, but one that risking your life, you know, and then recruiting women and, um, even, even the stupid little things, right. I, I was in the army. Um, if you have be- ill-fitting boots, it, it makes your life miserable. You know, like it's awful or ill-fitting uniforms and stuff from beginning to end. The story is, is inspiring. You know, she was, she was a, a very tough woman. Yeah. She was a bit of a boss. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you think history will continue to be rewritten as more women's stories like that come out or is much of it going to be kind of lost to the past? I think this is a bit of a yes and no question. Yes, I think more and more stories will come out and people, you just have to kind of go onto the podcasting realm to find all of the people out there telling women's stories and digging up women's stories and the historians who are diving into the archives to try and find and share women's stories. But I also think there's a lot lost to history that we'll probably never know. So hopefully, you know, from this point forward, we can start to be a little bit more thoughtful about whose stories that we share and whose perspectives that we keep Um, and acknowledging that the history of people in minority groups, not just women, but also people from lower socioeconomic groups, people from um, different cultures and different racial groups who maybe don't get... um, their stories shown as much as your privileged upper-class white person might. So I think it's it's a bit of a balance. So, yes, there will definitely, definitely be more. There's more people doing and telling more stories. But, no, there's still a lot that's lost and we'll probably never know. And that's a I think it's sad, but it's also a bit of a fun mystery because you can still occasionally discover a new story that you never have heard of before. So it's really exciting. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. do you think histories of the future will continue to harbor biases based on sex and gender and race? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I think (laughs) that because, you know, I, I think that as much as we'd like to think we're making progress in these areas, and we are, um, I think what you mentioned at the beginning of the show that, you know, listen, three quarters of textbooks are still written by men, right? And the majority of biographies are, are written about men. So there's still, you know, and despite um, some of the 
you know, if you look at the, the demographics of collegiate students and, and professors and stuff, women are, are overtaking men in, in a drastic fashion. So maybe in the future, there will at least mm. be better representation on, on the level of the people writing the books and those sorts of things. But, um, I think that we're, we're a ways away from having, um, any type of equitable representation. Um, you know, which is, it's sad, but I think, I think that things, do you think things are trending in the right direction? I think they're definitely trending in the right direction, but we all tell stories from our own biases. So it depends whatever bias you're kind of coming from. I know that my agenda is sharing women's stories. So when I am sharing the stories, I I really try and highlight the women and I sort of, I don't go much into the male stories in their life. Occasionally I will if it sets the context for their story, but I will... I'll actually silence a bit of the male perspective because I just really want to focus on the women and say, well, you, you've had your time. Guys, go to the other 75% of the books. I'm going to be the 25% here. Yeah. And I think that, I think that that's fine. Cause you know, I think that there's a lot of um, books that that's what they do is they cover a certain individual or a certain group of individuals. I think that where the progress needs to be made is on what is being taught in the public schools to a hundred percent of students, right? I think those yeah. are the, that's where we need to focus on getting things, um, an equitable representation is, you know. I think that's where the textbooks come into hand because when you're a teacher and sometimes when, I don't know about your system over there, but sometimes you'll just get some random sciencey math person who's never taught or ever been interested in history and they're scheduled to teach history classes. And they don't know anything about the field. They know how to be a teacher and a good teacher, but they don't know anything about history. So where do you go? You go straight to the textbooks. And if the textbook is so misrepresentative, then that's just going to perpetuate. So I think the key is actually changing the textbooks that are presented to children in the classroom and are presented to teachers where they get their research from because they're going to research, they're going to go, okay, what does the textbook say? That's what I'll teach. So I think we need to be really, really careful about what we put in the textbooks and make sure we're putting more representation. For example, um, I was teaching Shogun at Japan and this is a 700-year period of history and the chapter for this grade 8 text on Shogun at Japan, it didn't mention any women. This book was written in 2015, this textbook. It didn't mention any woman. There was one woman who was a sun god or goddess, <laughs> but not a real woman. <laughs> um, and there were not many representations of women. There were a couple of kind of geisha-looking women standing in the background in all of the representation. Another one was in the chapter on Vikings in a grade, maybe grade seven or eight textbook, I think. And I counted it up and there were 108 pictures of men all doing manly bi- Viking things. And there were about eight representatives representations of women and they're all doing the housework so (laughs) which is interesting because they just found recently um that there was a viking chieftain Uh, they found the the skeleton and they found that it was it was probably uh, a transgender person Um, yeah wow so i mean 
again, history, uh, you know, we're not privy to what, what happened before things were written down, but it's not, it's not like the things that are happening now are new things you know, things, Mm. all these people, all these events have been here throughout history. It's just whether or not they, their stories have been being told. Yeah. Well, to me, the key is changing the textbooks because then the inexperienced teachers of history in the classroom can go and have a rich representative resource that they can teach from rather than keeping to perpetuate this male-focused history or white male-focused history and that leaves out a lot of perspectives. So when we can get these textbooks a little bit more balanced, I think that's when the things will start to change. Yeah, I think so too. Is there anything that you want to mention that that maybe we didn't discuss? Did we miss anything or? Not that I can think of. Well, good. Then I I guess I did my job. We've <laughs> exhausted our, our Kelly, why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell people um, the name of your podcast and anything that you want to put out there so that the listeners can can look you up? Um, the name of my podcast is called History Detective. And today, actually, I released my very first video on YouTube, which is a bit exciting. So my YouTube channel is just called History Detective as well. Um, so if you want to look me up, you can find me on any of the podcast apps at History Detective and on YouTube, or I'm on Twitter if people are still there <laughs> at History Detective. I think it's called at History Detect or on Instagram at History Detective 9. All the usual social media places. <laughs> All right. Kelly, it was great talking to you.